So Russ, are you freaking out along with uh, everybody else? Is the sky, has the sky fallen? Right. Nope. No, it's Good. not. Good to hear. Kyle, can I just say really quick because I know, I know that I, I get this reputation for being negative. I got called out on Twitter, um, and it it really hurt me. So Good. I'm glad. On, on the yeah. last the last episode, I led off by saying that I didn't think that the game one three point shooting by the 76ers was sustainable, and I said that at some point Marco Bellinelli was going to hit a short stretch of games where the shots that he takes and makes that I actually love and adore are going to drive us insane. And lo and behold, Kyle, game two, it all happened. Now, I didn't mention the fact that Roko was going to play like trash, but still, um, I, I, there I, you, I mentioned negative, I mean, negative. I mean, I mean, I I mentioned that the shooting for the team wasn't going to be sustainable, and that Bellinelli was going to drive us nuts. And it happened in game two, and it's not well, being you negative. realize you you weren't going out on a limb by saying that they're not going to hit eighteen threes every game, right? Like you realize yeah. that is a pretty. Yeah, like obviously. You, turn, I th- you know what it is? And I think I didn't see the tweet someone sent to you, but I suspect that I, I can take a guess as to the contents of it because you will say something like that, like, oh, this isn't sustainable. When it's like, that's obvious. You know, it'd be like the Phillies hitting six home runs in a game, and then you being like, well, this isn't sustainable. They're not going to hit six home runs every night. And you spinning a very positive game into a negative because. It's not a repeatable for performance. I think that's why you may have rubbed somebody the wrong way. No, the, this guy. So this guy's name is Ryan Vaughn. He sometimes goes back and forth with me on Twitter, and I appreciate the fact that he listens, and I think it's great. But yeah, like he he was just like upset that you know I let off the podcast so negatively. I'm like I'm not trying to be negative. I'm really not. I mm. you know I just I, I look at takeaways from a game where you blow out a team by 27 points, and I'm like okay, you know how how likely is that to happen again? And what led to the blowout and ridiculous sure, three points? You would have led to, to also look so, at that in the context of the previous sixteen wins. It's not like uh, yeah. you know, it's not like them winning a game by a lot was out of the ordinary. I mean, they they find different ways to do it. Um, which is get, yeah, which is why I'm saying like in that game the three point shooting was bonkers, and that led to the blowout. And and like I think that's the thing that I I was trying to articulate that I didn't do a great job at in the last show is when you're looking at at these lopsided score lines, and this happens across the NBA playoffs in general, um, you know, you, you have to look and see if it was a well-balanced attack, and if it wasn't, if it was just an anomaly, whether it was three-point shooting, whether it was, you know, you out-rebounded the opposition by a nearly two-to-one ratio, I'm not saying that's what happened in the Sixers game, but like just in general, you know, second-chance opportunities like that or, or whatever it is, those things aren't going to happen over the course of a series. Now, game two was interesting because it was the thing that I think we all feared happening, the Dwayne Wade game. I thought it would happen in like mm. game three. I certainly did not expect it in game two on home court. I thought it would come in those sweet white heat uniforms that I'm going to be really disappointed if they don't wear on Thursday. The Miami um, Vice ones? Yeah and, yeah. and probably an accompanying whiteout. Like, to me, that felt like it would have been the Wade game. Uh, and it still might be. Um, yeah, look, this was. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're not totally panicking. Although I'm sure, I'm sure by the time we get 20 minutes into this, you'll have you'll have found a reason to bench Ben Simmons. No, stop. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote yesterday, and I, I don't know exactly where you stand on this. I'm not particularly worried. You're not. Dwayne Wade was awesome. Uh, I was down there. Uh, by the way, great, great atmosphere environment. Everything the Sixers do is, um, it, you know, it, it's it the the entertainment value, the arena, the the logo, the playoff logo, the jerseys, the lighting, like the whole thing. They've made 
what was a franchise that always felt like it was, uh, I don't want to say second rate, but oftentimes an afterthought, particularly when Comcast owned it in terms of that stuff. Like they were just turning the crank and, you know, occasionally they'd have a, a halfway decent team, but everything felt mediocre about the Sixers for years, basically our entire lifetimes, other than those AI years and those years where Croce had infused a little bit of uh, uh, whatever into the team. So uh, great atmosphere. It is nice to be at the Wells Fargo Center and see everybody in the building seated uh, and or standing uh, 10 minutes before tip or the faceoff. Uh, it's been a while. I feel like it's been a while since there's been that sort of genuine excitement in the building uh, where you look around and people are chanting like long before the game ever begins. Um, so great around, all around atmosphere. Um, the Dwayne Wade thing is not, you know, that is not sustainable. Um, he's a great player and it was kind of if I'm being honest, it was cool to see in person one of the all-time greats have a, uh, you know, a truly great playoff performance and win his team a game. Uh, I will say that was being there, you know, to see that. I'm I'm glad, you know, it was a part of that, even though the Sixers lost. That was pretty cool to see. It's not repeatable. I posted a shot chart yesterday, uh, a lot of long two-point jumpers, uh, many of them of the fadeaway slash turnaround variety. Um, while pretty to watch, um, those are not high percentage shots. And, you know, if that is going to be their offense, I have no worries about the Sixers in the series. Um, as poorly as that second quarter went, as great as Dwayne Wade played, um, as I'd say smart as the Heat's approach was to real really get under Ben Simmons' skin and get under everybody's skin. But, you know, I mean, to borderline from where I was sitting, it looked like a lot of foul. Like, it looked like there should have been fouls called early to keep that game a little bit more uh, above board. I don't think that was really – I don't think it was officiated well in either direction, um, but it was a smart tactic. You know, so you had all those things working for the Heat, and, you know, the Sixers still have it to two, and, and plus a poor Sixer shooting performance, part of that due to the Heat's defense. And the Sixers still have it to two with four minutes to go with all the momentum in the world, and then just a couple of costly turnovers really, really ice it. So if, it, you know, if that's the way the Heat have to win, I'm feeling real good about the Sixers here, um, and certainly once they get Embiid back. So I don't know where you stand on any of those things, but I, I feel like, I feel like hey, it's a playoff loss. Um, it's going to happen. Uh, at some point, Ben Simmons and, and some of the guys were going to be indoctrinated to play off basketball and that sort of intensity. And I don't want to say they weren't ready for it. I don't think that's the case. But, you know, I think it was, okay, wow, this no one has ever done this to me in a regular season game uh, with this sort of sustained attack for four quarters. And uh, that's fine. They'll adjust and move on. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. not worried. So here, here's like the, I guess the the biggest takeaway that I had, and this is how I felt all game. So in our in our Slack chat, which we you know we never bring up, um, I I I just kind of felt this negativity creeping in, and there was a moment in game two where I had I, I like I realized that with this team, uh, do you remember in the in the Super Bowl right after the the Gronkowski touchdown in the second half. I think that was where the the Patriots took the lead, right? Everybody was ready to jump off the boat. Like, everybody seemed to think on Twitter, in our Slack chat, everybody thought that the game was lost, and this is Tom Brady doing what Tom Brady does. It's all over. 
and there was this weird kind of calm that came over me and i said guys like they're they're gonna pull this thing out like you just have to believe it was a very weird moment it doesn't usually happen very often with me um but in game two i i felt that same kind of that strong resolve that the team was going to get through it and I'll, i'll just say this and it doesn't need a, a whole lot, but like, I'm very confident in the Sixers team. I'm very confident in Brett Brown, and they're going to win the series. I just don't know how many games it's going to take. And like, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about on Monday. Like, I think I said that I would not be surprised if they drop a game or two to Miami, if they drop a game or two to Boston, if they drop a game or two to, uh, or even I guess three, you know, to Cleveland or whoever ends up being in the Eastern Conference Final, assuming they get that far. And I think you kind of made it sound like I was nuts because I thought that they could lose potentially a game or multiple games in each round. And I know that they were riding a hot streak and, you know, we broke down the kind of teams that they were playing and some were Western Conference playoff teams. And so it's not like they were just playing against the basement of the league, but like eventually the law of averages is going to kind of play out and you're going to have a bad game. And, you know, I think more than anything, it seems like the thing that people can't kind of wrap their head around or they refuse to do in the moment is you're playing without your best player. And, you know, we talked about on Monday how how rough it might be to reintegrate Embiid into this. And Embiid is certainly not happy that he's not playing. But, you know, you get him in and it's a game changer. I mean, right now, I think the Sixers have already done a good job. And this is partially Ilyasova. A lot of this has been Ben putting his head down and drawing contact at the at the rim. But they've done a good job of getting guys into foul trouble. Justice Winslow went out, what was it, a few minutes into the uh, first quarter of the game, right, with two fouls. Like... They've been doing a good job of drawing contact and putting some of these guys in bad foul position. Now, the one thing that I think kind of drove Game 2 sideways at least a little bit was six minutes left in the game, Ursan Ilyasova picks up his fifth foul. And you can say what you want, and, uh, you know, the the national crew, I was listening to the national uh, broadcast because I just, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. They were talking about, you know... I do, do that, too. They, they to were me, it like, feels like more of an event when you're yeah. watching the national broadcast. As much as I like the local broadcasts, we, we get 80 games. I like the... Uh, uh, I'm with you. So, I'm I'm sitting there, six minutes left, and the broadcast team says, well, do you pull Ilyas over here, or do you trust him to, uh, to you know, not get that sixth foul? And I'm sitting there thinking, all right, well, you you, ha- you have to keep him on the floor because you need his second chance rebounding, which he was doing a great job of, and he's done a great job of in these last two games. And you also need his floor spacing. You can't really afford to take him out. You certainly can't put in Rashawn Holmes. And if you put in Amir Johnson, you can pretty much kiss any any chance you have of winning goodbye. You know, no offense to Amir, but he's not gonna he's not gonna beat you offensively. And his defensive game, I mean, he's just kind of in there to be. You know, I, I don't know. He can't keep up with Olenek, so I don't really know what value he brings. And Rashawn is a defensive liability to say the least. You know, Ilyasova, I think, changed the way that he played his game. And I don't blame him. They needed him. So you're going to modify the way that you play defensively. You're going to modify the way that you go up for a rebound. You're not going to be as physical. And I think in some small way, you could see if you watch those last six minutes again and watch where he's at, his positioning on the floor, and the way that he's a little bit tentative making contact with the opponent. Like, I think I think that played into it a little bit. It also doesn't help that the team seemed like they kind of were in cruise control for the first three quarters, only to then turn it on in the fourth quarter. It felt like a Flyers uh- game. All right, pause there. Um, that's where you might get a negative comment. So let's do our uh, let's do uh, our sponsor read, and then we'll we'll come back to that thought. Um, Want to tell you guys about? I do, and I will. Uh, Russ, did, did you know what the average cost of a wedding in Philadelphia is? Um, is it is it forty thousand dollars? It's just over forty thousand dollars. Wow. 
So the folks that I do and I will, local company uh, founded by a local guy in St. Joe's grad, which we discussed at our um, at our game watch last week. Um, we dis- discussed his St. Joe's fanhood, and I uh, I noted to him that um, you know the pro- their basketball program. He's a big basketball guy. I've gone. A little bit in opposite direction, uh, and he was he was much aware of that. Um, but uh, St. Joe's guy Richard Supley uh, is the founder of I Do and I Will. Uh, it's a great company, great idea. Uh, what they do is they partner with a lot of large brands, uh, everything from like Southwest Airlines, Vera Wang, vacation destinations, um, basically anything that you would come in con- flowers, uh, anything you would come in contact over the course of planning or having a wedding and a honeymoon. They partner with these companies. Uh, they work to get you discounts on your behalf. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Uh, they will work with you to save money on the wedding and, and, and their goal is to, um, you know, help put together a package for you that allows you to save up to 20% on the entire, uh, you know, surroundings of your wedding. So, uh, we want to thank them, uh, check them out. You can, uh, their website, I don't believe is live yet. Um, they have one, but it's, it's much more easily accessible through their Facebook page. Got it. But what they do, however, have a a live uh, partnership for flowers. Uh, Russ, you want the details on that? You want me to give them, or do you have them? <laughs> I I know them. Like, Go for what, it. What would you... So they have a uh, a sponsorship. One of their partners, Enjoy Flowers, can save you twenty five percent off of a flower order of eight hundred dollars or more. Uh, there is a promo code. I'm not going to give you the code. You have to go onto the website, and you're going to have to find the featured post. Um, but no, the give typical... them the code. <sighs> okay, it's en- enjoy. I do. I will. So the the thing here is the cost for flowers typically is anywhere between one and two thousand dollars, and that often doesn't even include the flowers for the reception. So um, as you or someone you know is looking to uh, to wrap up maybe the final stages of planning the wedding, if they are still looking at florists, uh, tell them to look no further than I enjoy flowers. And use promo code enjoy I do I will. Thanks to our friends at I do and I will and their partner, Enjoy Flowers. So I want to come back to your point uh, that you just mentioned about them being on cruise control for three quarters. Uh, this is the sort of thing I think you might get tweets over. I don't think I, that is fair or accurate or or it's I think it's basically cruise flat control out might wrong. have been a cruise control might have been a a poor choice of words. All we I, have is words. I, well, <laughs> you know. Also, we needed to keep people through the ad read, so it's it's good, good to good it's point. good to piss them off. So, um, look, I didn't no, think. Uh, yeah, I, look, ben, I thought the Ben was, awesome. was there. Yeah, he was, Ben was I awesome. Mean, he, he was he, clearly getting frustrated. He was number one. He was number one on the intensity chart. I would say the entire game, and mm-hmm. that, like that that did my heart plenty of good. I think Reddick, I mean, honestly, Reddick, I mean, they were all over Reddick, and he was trying to, you know, spin off his screens and, and do his high-energy thing, and, I mean, he just really couldn't get anything going. I thought Bellinelli, who, you know, does he ever shoot vertical? Is he ever vertical when he releases the ball? No. Uh, it's He's not. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's like, it, you know, it's like something out of a, um, you know, like an arcade the arcade it's like NBA jam. In a video game. Yeah. NBA jam or NBA hang time where yeah, all but... of the jump shots, like all the jump shots go side to side. Just like uh, yeah, Ilya Sova, all the shots are fadeaways. It's amazing. I was going to say like 04 NBA live where Ooh. everything you would take, they would sort of hop off to a 45 degree angle. Uh, it's okay. impressive. Again, that is not sustainable, but, um, 
But, I, you know, I look, I thought the effort was there. I don't think anybody was, you know, coasting. I thought the one thing I, I is probably a good talking point, and there was legitimate discussion about this in our Slack and, and I assume on Twitter, uh, was using the second half bringing McConnell in in lieu of faults, uh, which I actually thought was a good idea. I thought at that point with the game being uh, roughly 10-plus points and the Sixer, you know, the Heat really being all over the Sixers and struggling to get anything going, that would have been a bad situation to bring in Fultz to. Uh, he didn't look particularly good during his run in the first half. Um, I, I felt like that was the right decision, but I think that's up for debate. Uh, where do you stand on that? I think that the way that, that Miami's defense was locking in and, and was just in everyone's face, uh, I, I don't think that was a situation that Fultz was going to be successful. Now, we agree on something. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's tough too because they were they were actually being pretty successful in getting in Ben's grill. Now the thing was, Ben, there was a, a moment. I think it was in the fourth quarter where I really, really noticed that Ben was angry and Ben was trying to force his way um, and assert his dominance in a way that I think we had seen in the Cleveland game uh, that they they blew out the Cavs, like well for most of the game. Um, that, that was like the, the one thing that I saw that I was impressed by. Um, Fultz, Fultz was in what, five minutes in the game. He kept running himself into the lane. It almost looked like the, um, the last preseason game. I think that he had been in where we said, man, that, that spin moves awesome. But if he keeps trying to go to it too much, they're going to be able to defend him a lot easier. And it wasn't all that it was set up off the spin move. I think Fultz is still trying to get himself reacclimated to, the speed of the game against, you know, other professional competitors. And a lot of times he seems to get himself into these situations where he collapses the defense in the paint, but then doesn't have an idea of where he's going to go after it. Now, a lot of times he manages to find that guy in the corner or find someone at the top of the arc. Like he has eyes all through, you know, eyes all around his head. But in this game, he wasn't successful at finding that. Uh, I think he had a couple of layups blocked. He, he kind of got himself into some, some jammed up spots where there was really just no option for where he should go. And because they were losing and because the game was so intense, it made a lot of sense to bring in TJ. And I don't know in the long-term scheme of this series how that's going to go, but I've got to think that Brett's going to go right back to Fultz again in Game 3. But if they're behind and the intensity is, is ratcheted up, I don't know if that's the time that you can put Fultz in. Now, Jeff had brought up the idea of putting Fultz and Simmons in together so that you have two you know, ostensibly two um, typically primary ball handlers on the floor just as a way to kind of relieve some of the pressure so that, um, you know, the defense isn't up in Ben's grill and, you know, preventing the offense from still flowing. So the you got to credit Miami. They did a great job of, of getting into, you know, the Sixers' faces and, and really kind of throwing – some um, some roadblocks into the motion offense that they that they run so many sets out of. I mean, it doesn't matter who who you get the sets from. There are plenty of writers locally, including Kevin, who do a great job of breaking down these sets. But um, you know, a, a lot of the the sets the Sixers run with with double screens and um, you know, kind of doing misdirection, making it look like they're going to screen one direction, and then it turns out that like JJ Redick sets a screen and then pops himself back out. They weren't able to to find success in that. They they weren't able to get the kind of open shots or the the shots that JJ's used to where it's really not open but he can kind of take a dribble and and start to fade to the side almost a la Bellinelli and and get one off it just didn't happen now all that said the Sixers had 23 or 25 three-point attempts with four feet of space 
uh, around them, and they only shot 24% on them. So That Miami, is an interesting stat. Where did you find that? If I tell you, it was a beat writer, and his name is Derek Bodner. How would that make you feel? Yeah, Bodner Bodner tweeted this out. I thought it was one of the best stats that I saw coming out of the game. So the whole tweet was this. The Sixers shot 30.2% on uncontested field goal attempts. 32 point, or 30, 30.2%. 25 three-point attempts, four feet of space, shot just 24% on them. And what I'm looking at right now is I was trying to do a comparison while, while you were talking before to just kind of look at specifically Covington and Bellinelli, and I'm not done my analysis, so I'm going to throw it back to you. But do you think that, um, you know, if, if Miami comes out with this this defense and you can't get any kind of, of motion working in your offense, would you consider uh, in the right in the right setup, would you consider putting Fultz and Simmons on the floor together to try to alleviate some of that burden? Uh, I wouldn't do it if you're struggling like you were the other day. Um, you know, and I agree with you on Fultz. I thought bringing him in, you know, on in theory, on paper, he's you know, arguably their, their best ball handler, or, you know, at least in theory should be, uh, it would have made sense to have him in there against the press, but he, like you said, the speed of the game, he's still catching up to it. And I don't think that would have been the right situation to, uh, to bring him into. And I, I think it would have actively hurt the team. I mean, as it is, they did get, here they come, you know, they were barreling down the road in the fourth quarter, uh, doing what they did and were very much in a position to win that game. So I think they did make those right calls. Um, I agree with uh, Mike Masinelli, who thought that uh, Brett Brown could have made better halftime adjustments to the pressure. I really don't think he did. They didn't come out much better in the third quarter after that dreadful second quarter. Um, so I, I, if the Heat, the Heat are going to do this again, they'd be foolish not to. The Sixers will be fine. This is the sort of thing you kind of have to see once. You have to be ready for. You have to have a plan in place for. The Sixers clearly did not have that. You know, kind of Ben Simmons posting up to receive an inbounds pass after a free throw uh, is not something you, you want to see too often. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, uh, Kevin said it felt like pl- playing West Virginia or Bob Huggins team. And that's exactly what it looked like. Um, you, that is easy. Nah, I don't want to say it's easy. It is you can overcome it with good ball handlers and speed and all of that, but you do have to have a plan in place. And I, I'm not so sure the Sixers had that the other night. So they'll be fine. They'll adjust to it. They'll practice it. Um, this is the NBA. Those sorts of things only work for so long. You know, this isn't uh, – who's the guy who owns the Kings? Vivek Randive or whatever his name is? Yeah. Um, there's a section about him in Malcolm Gladwell's David vs. Goliath about how he stumbled upon basketball and was coaching his daughter's, like, fourth-grade team. And he realized that even though he didn't have the same athletes as the other team, he could just press the shit out of them. There was no league rule. And basically just neutralize whatever advantage the other team had by by just pressing the girls the whole court. Um, That works in fourth through eighth grade girls basketball. Um, That doesn't work for long periods of time in the NBA. Um, You have too many good athletes and ball handers. So I think Sixers will figure it out. And that's what I mean. Like the Heat... You know, they went to this, they got a game, They uh, some other ancillary things went their way, but it's it's not going to be able to happen again. Um, you know, they might get another one here. It's you figure even if they get one in Miami, then the Sixers take two. But I don't think it's going to be the pressure uh, that does the Sixers in. They, you know, they have too many talented guys uh, who are able to uh, withstand that. And this is where we come back to coaching. And this is why, you know, people who, who follow multiple sports are, I think, much more likely to believe in Brett Brown than say they would Dave Haxtall. Like I think there's nothing quite like the ability that 
Um, yeah, I, I think I think Brown is going to go back to the drawing board. He's going to break down the film, and this team is smart, and this team's got plenty of vets now that are going to go back, check the tape, and they're going to figure out ways to to beat this press, and they're well, going to be fine. And like, yeah. look, they they very well might lose a game in Miami. Now, if they lose game three, and Embiid doesn't play, the city of Philadelphia is going to explode, right? Like, it's it's going to be bad. So let's. Let's hope, if nothing else, the Sixers win Game 3. If you lose Game 4, whatever. But for the love of God, don't lose Game 3 because I don't need to, to see Twitter blow up with, oh, well, we always th- we thought this team was, was a lot better than they were. Uh, Joel Embiid, like all the people who have been saying, well, you know, the team's going to play slower with Joel Embiid. I'm not actually sure that he shouldn't be coming off the bench when he comes back. All those people are now going to be the same guys calling up, you know, 97.5 and, and seeing Mike Mizzinelli on TV. That are going to now, you know, say, Embiid needs to be back. This team sucks without him. They didn't do anything. And it's like, guys, they they won 10 games in a row without him. Like, it's okay. So I'd be interested to know what the medical case is for keeping Embiid out at this point. Um, you know, there's, there's probably three things. Is it his conditioning? Uh, which seems, you know, he hasn't been out that long to, to not be able to at least play 20 minutes. Um, is it? Uh, you know, is it concern over his load management and not being in game condition, you know, and not wanting to get him hurt, like wanting to get his body back up to speed? I can't imagine that's it. Again, he hasn't been out that long. Or I assume the the obvious one here is, you know, they want to have that bone fuse together a little bit more in his face before they risk him taking an elbow. Like, I, I don't know. That's my thought. The... That's my thought. Is, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a mess. We don't know, though. It would be nice if, like, yeah. they could fill us in. But it's like, you know, it's it's a mask and and it's not like it's floating, right? So if, if he catches an elbow, Whiteside is dirty and Whiteside hates him. If Whiteside happens to throw an elbow and smash him in the face, like, he's probably out for a lot longer. I don't care how good that mask is. Uh, I still think that's an issue. That would be my guess. You know, I, I, I would agree with you. And, you know, but... It's it's not it's probably not going to be fully healed whenever he does come back. I mean, a, a bone is a what a, you know a full six weeks to heal, regardless, and it's yeah, going to be what like four weeks since the actual procedure was done, whatever it is. Um, th- the point is, like, if he wants to play, there are there are risks, and I imagine I, I wish we had Jeff on for this, although he's a cardiologist, but um, I imagine there are heightened risks if you have. You know, if you get popped again in a broken facial bone, I imagine it can go somewhere uh, where it's not supposed to be, and that's the serious concern. But I mean, these are the things you have with athletes all the time. He clearly wants to play physically; his body should be able to play. Um, you know, if to me, him tweeting that the other night, while I think it was just out of frustration and and ultimately not that big of a deal, tells me that a doctor has not told him, "No, you can't play because if you get hit in the face, you could die." You know, like remember Ertz had the weird, uh, that weird broken rib cage where it was like, yeah, if, if that breaks again, like that could be a real problem. Um, I, unless someone has had that sort of conversation with Embiid, like there is a genuine risk to your well-being if you take a hard elbow here. Um, you know, I, I don't think that is the case based upon that tweet. So it's like, what is the reason here? If I'm well, first was on his Instagram you know? live, he's not stupid enough to tweet it. Although this kind of well, comes back to the, the right, judgment sorry. call of. I mean, anything you put on social media is going to be found or, or you know, put out through any other medium. So um, thankfully, it's not like he, he blatantly went out and tweeted it, but it was on his Instagram live story. It was a stupid thing to do. And ultimately, like, it's something that I'm sure, you know, Brett kind of laughed it off. I think it was Kyle Newbeck that asked the question at the uh, the presser. But, you know, they said 
he he put this out like what are your thoughts and brett kind of laughed it off and gave a a perfect brett answer which all these years of the process have kind of gotten him ready for he's practically ready for any question that they're ever going to ask nothing really seems to catch him by surprise anymore um but i I think that's going to be a conversation is you know you're allowed to be emotional we don't want you to not be you but going on to social media after that loss and putting that kind of thing out it's not that you're expressing the frustration of having lost it's it appear it makes it creates the appearance of dissent it creates the appearance of a lack of unity between you and the doctors and the team and ultimately that can be more of a distraction than anything that can help it's certainly not going to apply pressure to the sixers to play him if the medical staff uh, clear, you want to bet <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if the medical staff at this point has a legitimate reason that they're trying to hold him out, I don't I don't know if this is going to be the thing that pushes it. I mean, like, maybe it will. Like, maybe the maybe public opinion will do it. I mean, if they don't clear him, which they still haven't, they haven't ruled him out officially, but they have not cleared him for game three yet. If that ends up happening, if they don't clear him and he doesn't play and they lose, he's certainly going to play in game four. Um, and the the screams of the people are going to be heard much louder than they are now. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like I, I I know what you're getting at in thinking that he's going to be a, able to apply this pressure, and it's it's going to inevitably make them, uh, you know, make the decision to clear him. But I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, I'm we've seen thing weirder things happen with this medical staff, and I think ultimately the the team is kind of looking at his long term health over. Um, you know this this like maybe him playing in game three you know if they if they legitimately legitimately make a medical decision and they're like you know what if he sits out game three we think he's going to heal that much more and then we think his face is going to be stabilized better starting in game four i don't know look this is why i'm not a doctor but like if they have that kind of concern i don't blame them for keeping him out but they they better win the game anyway i was looking at colin coward and i i saw you wanted to uh you wanted to discuss this. He he went on his show and said that Philadelphia is not special. Yeah, so real quick, I, look, I know that he is a troll, and I'm going to try and post this video today. Uh, basically said, he said, hey, Philly, you guys have been flying first class for the last few months. You're typically a coach-flying fan base. You guys have been flying first class with the Eagles winning the Super Bowl, Villanova winning the national championship, and the Sixers winning their, you know, riding high in their 17-game win streak. But now, you know, get ready to be moved back to coach. By the way, this on a day where there was a serious uh, almost plane crash in Philly. Um, (laughs) Probably not the best analogy to use, but... Uh, he said, you're going to be moving back to coach. The Sixers are coming back down to earth. Nine out of the 10 playoff victories so far. Uh, the team who has hit more three-pointers have won. So, of course, you won game one. Why are you getting ahead of yourselves? You just happen to hit more threes. Uh, you know, the Sixers aren't that good. They they could potentially lose to the Heat. You know, basically saying, like, throwing out the entire previous 16-game run or, you know, the entire season of 52 wins and just focusing on the fact that, you know, you shouldn't get out ahead of your skis. The Sixers hit more three-pointers than the Heat. Kind of like what you said, that's not repeatable. They're not that good. Uh, they're an average, They're losing to an average team in Miami in Game 2. Like, just totally base. I don't want to say baseless, but totally a rudimentary take on that game because you're taking game one in a vacuum saying, oh, well, they hit all these threes. They can't do that again. Yeah. I know. Did you watch any other game this season? Have you seen how many threes they hit? Have you seen how good they are defensively? How fast they are? What a matchup nightmare they are. Like I'm all, I get that he's trolling us. I get that he wants to elicit this reaction. I totally understand that. But like, 
this is why this is why people sour on stuff that's on TV or in a lot of the mainstream because you're not even attempting to do it with any sort of facts. Like if you want to come on and troll the Sixers, um, you know, or any fan base for whatever reason, then there are plenty of genuine, justifiable, steeped in truth reasons you could do it over. Um, claiming that the the only reason the Sixers won game one and that we were so excited about them was because they hit 18 threes is absurd, is absurd. Um, I don't know. Well, I just hate not, that sort it, of thing. You know, and it wasn't just that. Like, listening to it, you know, he, he gives this whole thing about, like, Ben Simmons is special, but you are not special. Go ask LeBron James. He's the best player in the NBA. And his team just got embarrassed at home by the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, it's I, like, again, it's I don't like, know what his point was. It's like, was. dude, yeah, and, and like he said, this is the new NBA. Thanks, dude. We know it's the new NBA because, um, you know, thanks to Sam Hinkie, we have a team that's going to compete in the new NBA. And thanks in part to Brian Colangelo bringing in Bellinelli and Ilyasova, we've got a team that won 17 straight games. Yeah, we know what the new NBA looks like, you know, dude. Like, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, except he says uh, the last thing that he ended on, this is why it was stupid. He's like, unless you're really hot, this is the new NBA. They won 17 straight games. How much hotter could you be? It's a stupid point. It's just dumb. And here's the thing. I like Colin Coward. I think he does a good job. Like, I think, I think, yeah, pull, I do too, pull, but... pull everything away. I think he might be one of, or perhaps the best national radio guy there is at doing what he does. And what he does is at least present himself in a somewhat knowledgeable manner about practically every sport that comes up. And he's got a a good team working around him that makes him sound like he, you know, watches all these games, which I obviously don't believe he does. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see how he uh, he goes back to loving the Sixers in about three games or so when they close out the series. So, And as a um, Nova I'm, fan, he loves Nova, but he, he loves he said that, But He said even, that they're going to probably win another title. That was the one team... Nice. That was the one team. Well, Spellman is leaving. So, well, he didn't sorry, get an agent. Sorry, he, he didn't sorry about you, bro. He didn't get an agent. He, he there's a fifty-fifty shot he leaves. He's he's leaving. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he's not guaranteed to be a first-round pick. It would make very little sense because he would he would definitely be a first-round pick, presumably if he's healthy next year. Do um, you have any any thoughts on Mizzinelli's TV debut? Yeah. All right. This is a good topic. Um, and then we got to go. We got to okay. like, let's go like a minute or so. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do a write up for the website today. It's really hard because you have to separate the show because everyone is familiar with his show. Um, although the the two uh, Natalie and the his producer, I forget the guy's name. Uh, I think add a different dynamic. Um, I think it's good. Like it, it's this isn't something that's hard to do, but I think they've done it right. Um, you know, they have three cameras. There seems to be some level of production and direction going on on the TV side where there's occasional graphics. There's an occasional split screen. It's not just we stuck. The, the cameras are static, but it's not like they totally were like, all right, we're just going to like stick this camera in the corner of the room and that's it. We're going to broadcast it. There's a little bit of direction there. Um, I think it's framed well. I think each of their person, I think they're they're they're. The dynamic between the three of them is what really stands out to me on TV because there seems to be more of a focus lately on Mike's show where it's not just him and a producer. It's him, the producer, and Natalie, and they're, each of them seem to be more part of the show um, you know, than those those roles were in the past. I like that. I think it's a good dynamic, and I think it actually plays well on TV. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's good. I mean, it's, you know, it's the radio on TV. It's not going to be... You know, this is going to be Breaking Bad, but I think they've done a nice job with, you know, what, what they've done. Um, 
they seem to be looking at the camera a lot and kind of breaking the fourth wall for the TV side. I think they'll stop doing that because ultimately it's there's I would imagine more people listening on the radio. But um, yeah, I I think it's good. All right. Well, you got anything? Have you seen it? I I didn't see it on TV yet. I saw some screenshots. And well, there you uh, go. You know, well, you'd be more joked. qualified the he, way in than Colin Coward, who clearly hasn't I mean, watched the Sixers games other than game one. All I'm going to say is they're not doing anything that's really revolutionary. <sighs> Natalie Egonoff might be special, but Mike oh, Mazzinelli's show is not special. I'm just kidding. This Although is- I, I will say when I tuned in yesterday, Mike Mazzinelli was talking about how uh, middle-aged women don't have sex anymore, and I was like, okay, uh, he's... Change the channel. You should probably. There, there oh, we go. You know, like you know. Perhaps sometimes not with he you. just might want to. Perhaps take a not beat with you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I'm not going to judge the guy. I don't know his life. I don't know his story. That's anyway, a good place then. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a perfect place. So this is the Crossing Broadcast. We'll be back on Friday. Um, I believe it's playoff time, so we'll be back with some kind of show on Friday. We might do a crossover show. It all depends. Kyle might be there. He might not be. It really depends. He's not a big fan of the Fridays anymore. But we will be back with some form of a show on Friday. Don't forget, uh, if you're looking for Flyers coverage tomorrow, Thursday morning, uh, Snow the Goalie will be up with uh, me and Anthony Sanfilippo breaking down what in the world has been happening to the Philadelphia Flyers. They, they lost. They won. They lost. We'll see where they're sitting at Thursday morning. Uh, until then, we will talk to you guys again later this week.